183. Weather is a metaphor in Shira Shurim, but of Moshe Tarigan. Welcome everyone to the Yeshiva. Welcome to the Meion. I know that you've been here. Many of you have been already a few days, so those of you who have been here, I haven't had the chance to welcome you. Those who just came today, thank you for joining us. Shira Shirim, as Rabbi Akiva, the great visionary, upon whom so much of Tishabab is pivoted, one of the Asara Haruge Malchus, referred to Shir Hashirim as Kodesh Kadashin. Its content is vaunted, its historical sweep is panoramic, it tries to capture in poetry the uncontainable relationship between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and man, and in particular between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the Jewish people. Um, I think they can hear me in the back, right? So I think we'll just keep it this way, I apologize. It's always bad to sit in the front. And it tries to contain an uncontainable relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and his people. It's one of the finest, if not the finest, poem ever written. Its imagery and metaphor is lush and luxuriant and indulgent. Shlomo HaMelech employs a battery of different metaphors and metaphoric systems to try to capture the majesty and the sweep, the layers and the strata of our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The book is filled with metaphors and series and sequences of metaphors. Food is employed. And I'll just use references from the first few prakim because those are the ones which are most familiar to many. Yayin, shemen, dvash, v'chalav, wine, oil, honey, milk. Many different buildings are employed as metaphors. Beit Yayin, the house of drinking wine. Alei Kedar, Yiriot Shlomo, Beit Imi, Cheder Harati, Migdal David. It's a series of very interesting buildings that capture our relationship through history with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Furniture, Karos Bateinu, Apiriona Samelech Shlomo, Arsenu Ranana, furniture, home furnishings. Wood is described, Arazim, Brotim, Atzehayar, Kitapuach, Batzehayar. Various different spaces and locations, Engedi, Migdal David, Yerushalayim, Midbar. Obviously, animals play an important role in Shir Hashirim. Eder HaRachelim, a flock of rams. Eder HaIzim, a flock of goats. Tomei Tzviah, a pair of deer, of doe. Domedodi Litzvi, we of course are compared to a Yonah, Yonati Bechagvei Asela, Besesa Madriga. It's a very fragrant sefer. Avkat Rochel, Tzvar Hamor, Eshkol HaKofer, Mor, Kitaras, Mountains, Harivater, Gibata Levona, Har Hamor, Sneer Bechermon. So Shlomo is embracing full, full batteries of metaphors to try to capture not just the depth of our relationship with Rabbanu Shalom, but also the subtleties and the nuances as they are altered throughout history. Today I'd like to discuss the employment of one particular metaphor, and that's weather, seasons, and environment. They're not as frequent but they're still highly influential in the narrative, and not just in the literary narrative, but of course every read of Shir Hashirim is a dual read. The actual storyline and the points in time in Jewish history which this story relates to or accesses. How does Shlomo employ weather and seasons in Shir Hashirim to capture the historical pursuit between man and the Jewish people, between Akrush Baruch excuse me, and the Jewish people? Seasons are highly influential in our lives. They impact our emotions. We feel certain emotions in spring, different emotions in summer and in winter. We stream our experience through seasons. 
And in fact, to a degree, we stream our religious experiences through seasons. It's undeniable that Pesach is tethered to Aviv, to Chodesh Aviv, Shamar Chodesh Aviv. Just as Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, less obvious, are tethered to the late summer, early fall, as the harvest quickly approaches and man is liberated from the work and the industry of the field to turn inwards for religious introspection before the long and dormant winter. And even a holiday such as Hanukkah, which is purely rabbinic, Chazal associate with the winter months when the entire base Hamikdash is essentially dormant and Hanukkah appears during a pre-exilic stage right before the great exile begins. So we certainly, our moods are affected and our emotions are affected. But of course, seasons are also metaphors. We employ seasons to describe certain modalities, mental attitudes or mental um, conditions, emotional conditions, even when we don't experience those seasons, even when we may be in a different season. The winter of our discontent in Shakespeare's mind didn't refer solely to events which occurred during the winter, just as Vivaldi's Spring Concerto didn't only refer to the events of spring. So how does Shlomo draft and employ seasons both as frameworks for events in real time and mood setters and metaphors and how do they assist in both driving the narrative and ultimately creating correspondence or corresponding metaphors to certain events in Jewish history. But before, I disguise, before we start, I want to issue a disclaimer. There's so many sweeping landscapes, mountains, rivers, valleys, locations, animals, that are inextricably linked with season. But to discuss all of those aspects and all of those metaphors would be far, far beyond the context of this year. So I limit myself just to the employment of seasons in general and in two particular instances. And we may wander off into some of the animals and landscapes that are transitioned into by those seasons. First of all, what role do seasons and weather play on a global level? And then Amir Tashem will inspect two specific, very, very delicate textual junctures in which the seasons are addressed in very specific form. Redemption is a shift. Redemption is a shift in human experience, national experience, in history itself. And a season is a major shift in human experience. The day grows shorter or longer. Sunrise and sunset is altered. Our biorhythms respond agricultural cycles. For us, we flip on the air conditioning, but we certainly have to adapt to it. For some, those shifts are very dramatic and sharp, and for some, they're much more fluid and less notable. And sometimes redemption is apocalyptic, a complete overhaul of the previous reality, and sometimes it's more of a transition and evolution. But there's no question that if Shir Hashim is a book of history and the search for HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the search for Geula, then seasons are going to be highly valuable and highly evocative in signaling a shift. And not just seasons in general, but the constituent elements that change with the seasonal change. So Shlomo HaMelech has opened an entire new arsenal of metaphors, which he now has at his disposal. But it's not just the element of shifting and transitioning which seasons capture. It's also a device which Shlomo HaMelech employs to try to solve, or not solve, but to sustain one of the core tensions of Shir Hashir. One of the core tensions is how to read the storyline. Should it be read chronologically as one long timeline, beginning with 
Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and concluding with the Yemos HaMashiach. If that were true, then the book should be basically trisected. There are three redemptive events. The redemption from Egypt, Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim. The return during the days of Ezra. And the long-awaited redemption, which we feel we have begun to participate in. And essentially, this is the method which many, many classic Mirfarshim, such as Rashi, adopt, more or less, without trying to clearly define the boundaries. The first two, three prakim refer to the events upon liberation from Mitzrayim, of course, wandering through the desert, entering Israel, establishing monarchy, but that first golden era. Parakeh refers to the great fail to return during the days of Ezra in which Hashem was literally knocking at our door and his knock went unanswered. And the final paragraphs refer to our current state. And that's one way to reach Shir Hashirim, one long timeline. And the events in the first part of that trisection have little to do with, let's say, redemptive experiences in the final stages of history because we can insulate and compartmentalize Shir Hashirim the three different time periods which follows a chronological timeline. However, timelines in Shir Hashirim are very convoluted. They're not just convoluted, they're mutilated. Of course, it's poetry, and poetry knows no time, as opposed to prose. And Shir Hashirim, just in the very two prakim, confuses us about the timing intentionally to create more of an overlapping read rather than a chronological read. So, for example, in the very beginning, the woman expresses intimacy, which we assume is the culmination of a relationship. These are very intimate, graphic descriptions of a relationship. Then immediately afterwards, we find that the two are distant. Their communication is very stunted. He doesn't speak to her, doesn't even tell her where he is, as we'll see later. How could they be so intimate and married? And then the next section... They seem to be apart and distant. Or, in more graphic terms, Paragimel, the end of Paragimel, there's a wedding. And presumably that wedding includes the woman. She comes from the desert, from Engedi, where she lives, bejeweled with fragrance and perfume. Shlomo's waiting for her. He's built an aperion, basically one of those carriers which they carried aristocrats with. Santa Rena Benot Shion, the friends are invited, So the day of the wedding is here. And yet, in the next sentence, in the next pasuk, they're apart. She's in her mother's house, they're courting one another, he's praising her. Does she or Hashirim actually have timelines? I spoke last year about the literary narrative being stream of consciousness, and stream of consciousness certainly obliterates any sense of timing because it's just a free flow of thought and emotion. There's a different way to read Shir Hashir. It's not a timeline but trisected or bifurcated by chronology. It's one long process. It's one long courtship. And that courtship and that redemptive encounter can be then overlaid to every single moment of Gula. What happens in Perak Zion is reflected both in Yitziat Mitzrayim as well as in Yemot HaMashiach. And what happens in Perak Aleph is a signal to our own experience, not just to an ancient redemption thousands of years ago. With the presumption, of course, that Gulos are fairly similar, and there's one template that seems to repeat itself with signature differences, but those differences aren't revolutionary to the point that they have to be segmented or separated. 
So it's a core tension in Shir Hashirim. Should it be read as chronological, timeline, what occurred first and what occurred subsequently? Should it be read as one long process, one elongated, elliptical, historical arc? And of course, the answer to that question is both are true. They don't conflict with one another, they complement each other. We know that redemptions are very similar, but they do exhibit differences. And seasons have that capacity to capture both, both reads. April 2018 was the start of a chronological process which we are now navigating. The spring of 2018 was the onset of the seasons which would then yield to summer and ultimately give way to winter, to fall, to winter. But if you paid attention during April 2018, you're also reliving April 2017. And it felt similar to springs you experienced in the past. So it wasn't just the start of a timeline, it was nostalgic to previous springs, and to a degree, it was nostalgia to any seasonal shift. To a degree, all seasonal shifts have a common feel of readjustment and modification. So when the seasons shift, redemption is, or the core tension of redemption is captured, both in seasons giving way to later seasons, but also cycling upon themselves and repeating the same templates. And that's why Shlomo Melech is so carefully attuned to the summer, to the spring, and to the fall in a general sense because it is one of the anchors. It's not just a metaphor, it's an anchor because it signals a shift as every redemption is. And it also anchors these two different reads. Again, most of Chazal, or certainly the Mepharshim, read it as one chronological time frame. If you take a look at source number one, why is it called Shir Hashirim, the very top of the page? So Rabbi Ebo said, Shir connotes one, Hashirim connotes two because of plural. Taken together, Shir Hashirim suggests that there really are three poems contained within Shir Hashirim. As I said before, the trisection. Three redemptions, three poems. But Chazal didn't all read it that way, and many of them read eschatological meaning into the early chapters, and Mitzrayim signals to the later chapters, as if it was one overlapping description. More specifically, how does Shlomo HaMelech employ it in two, as I said before, very, very unique textual frameworks. One is in Perak Bet, and one is in Perak Vav. And we'll study each of them carefully, both at a global sense, as well as trying to deconstruct all the components which Shlomo embeds, and how they both enrich, as I said before, the literary narrative, the storyline, and ultimately the deeper reference to our search for redemption and our search for God. In the second chapter, the man exhibits a lot of energy. Kol dodi, pasachet. Hinezeba, medaleg al hearim, mekapetz al hagvaos. Domed dodi, let's see, of course, we're seeing this through her eyes. It's important because your energy can be a little overwhelming for the other person. So in her eyes, his eyes, he's very excited, but maybe too much for her, as we'll see. Kol dodi hinezeba, medaleg al hearim, mekapetz al hagvaos. This isn't the omniscient narrator. This is her first-person description. There's a lot of energy, a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm, as captured by the leaping and bounding and the, the easy and elegant motion of a gazelle. And now he speaks to her, and really this is the first invitation of the man. The only prior communication, as we'll see later, was very, very almost disrespectful and apathetic, and I'll see in a moment. 
But here he invites her to join him. He invites her to redeem herself, to rendezvous. Pasuk Yud. Ana dodivi amarli. Kumi lach rayati afati ulechi lach. Of course, the key word in the Pasuk is the word lach, which means her, but also means to walk. And it's repeated in the end of the verse, ulechi lach, which to any Jew is a resonant phrase, lachi lach, lach lacha. And it's repeated towards the end of this minor section, Pasuk Yud Gimel, Kumi lach rayati yafati ulechi lach. So there's a play on words between lach and lacha, lach lacha. So he wants her to join him. And two things have changed in this parak from the previous parak, the previous round. In the previous round, all the energy and initiative came from the female, from the woman. He seemed, at best, disinterested. At worst, disrespectful. She's searching for him. She praises him in the very beginning. She admits her own failure. She recognizes she has flaws, but she searches for him. Where can I find you? You'd expect him to say, near the tree, near the river, three, three clicks north. Imagine if someone asked you for instructions, someone beloved to you, and you said, oh, follow the car. You feel her grasping and longing for his response and interest, and he seems very diffident. If you can't find me, ask the sheep. It's a little insolent, even. And now he's excited. Now he's bounding and leaping. The second change is the mental space. Remember, the king is regal and royal, lives in Jerusalem in an affluent palace. She lives in Engedi. She guards her vineyard. She's a country bumpkin. And it's the gap between them that reminds us of the difficulty of this rendezvous with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Ultimately, we're a human and he's immortal. And every redemption entails a union between the two and we just don't understand one another. And in the first parak, all his metaphors are metaphors of the palace. He praises her and he appreciates her beauty. I don't think she understands what he's talking about. You're as beautiful as the horses in Pyro's chariot. Don't try this at home. <laughs> Not a good pickup line. Not that I know too many pickup lines. But. but there's something about the horses and their organized, flush arrangement that he sees in her. Has she ever seen horses or chariots? I doubt it. <coughs> your hair is covered or your cheeks are covered with wreaths. I never saw a golden wreath. Basically, there's a gap between them, and they're not, literally, they don't speak the same language. She's in Engedi, and he's in the palace. And part of our relationship with Rabbi Shalom, it's meant to be bilateral, and it's meant to be expressed as a spousal relationship, is we have to learn his language. And to a degree, if we're meant to take Shir Hashim literally as part of our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch he has to learn our language. Or at least we have to think that he understands our language. He knows our language, but in our terminology. But in the second parak, he does speak her language. And he refers to the landscapes and seasonal change as an incentive to elicit her interest. And at this point, we see spring. Pasuk 
Yud Aleph, Yud Bet, Yud Aleph. Kinei Astav Avar, in Shir Hashirim, Stav means winter. Kinei Astav Avar, the winter has passed. Hageshem Chalaf Halachlo. Notice the rain is walking away. Halachlo. So if he warns her, Kumi Lach Rayati Afati, he asks her to realize that there's motion in weather and that she can exhibit the same motion, Lachilach. So he points to the weather. Essentially, he lists three or four elements. Number one, the dissipation of winter weather and of the gale storms and rainstorms. Number two, the sprouts and the shoots, the growing plants and trees. It's time to prune. It's not etakatsir. That will happen later. It's etazamir. Time to prune and clip and reduce some of the load from the trees and gather in some fruits. Kol hator nishma biartzenu. A lot of hustle, bustle, a lot of noise. Spring is associated with noise, a lot of birds. Spring is probably the noisiest month, unless you count the wind of the fall. Think of Vivaldi's concerto and how many different sounds and voices are interplaying with one another. So there's this loud bird, kol hator nishma biartzenu. Hatenach and tafageha. Interesting, they were unripened fruit, which have to be shed. Because if they remain on the tree, the tree can't grow. Hagifanim, the grapes are smadar. They're not yet fully ripened, but yet they're fragrant, not nureach. I alluded to this earlier, maybe for some future shirah, Yezrat Hashem, fragrance is highly, highly central in shirah shirah, fragrance and smell. To a degree because it allows connecting at great distances. They're longing for one another, they're yearning for connection, but they're not in the same location, but they can smell each other in the winds of the mountains are carrying hafichi gani, yizlu b'samav, afkas rochel, tzor hamar dodile, eshkol hakofer dodile, ben shadayalin. So it captures the yearning. You can feel and smell. People talk about the smell of another human being. The smell, you know the smell of a child or of the person you live with. The person may not be there, but you can still recognize their presence. The two major aspects here, I'll talk about some of the minor elements are as follows. Number one, that the man delineates that both winter has passed and the rains have ended. It's pretty obvious that if the rains have ended, winter has passed. Why does he stipulate each? Evidently, he wants her to leave and to repair their relationship in ways that both winter weather prevented as well as rainstorms prevented. There are two reasons to unite. Exile, Chazal tell us, based on this duality, shouldn't be seen as one large, undifferentiated time period. Exile is composed of at least two components. Number one, the long period of distance and disconnectivity from Hashem, from our homeland, from peoplehood, from historical relevance. But then there's another element to exile, the suffering, the torture, the tragedy, the Tisha part of Gullus. Spanish Inquisitions, Asara Haruge Malchos, Holocausts, Tach Batat. And we're meant not just to experience Gula, but to appreciate it at its different layers. And Gula is meant to repair each and to respond to each. Gula is a return, restoration to our peoplehood and homeland and our Kurdish Baruch. It's a response to the long dormancy and hibernation of the winter. We hibernated through history, we're distant. But it's also a response to Geshem. It's also a response to tragedy, to suffering, to Chil Hashem, to downpours on humanity. We were meant to 
spearhead the human experience, and sometimes we suffer for that, and we're punished for that. Not punished, but persecuted. So Chazal were very sensitive to this introduction or invitation. Source number one, second source number one, after Chodesh Aviv, Parak Bet. Astav Avar, line number two, one Aleph. Lohu HaGeshem, Lohu Astav. Aren't they identical? Amar Rabbi Tanchuma, line number three. It's right on the first page, the first side. Okay, right under Chodesh Aviv, Stav Vegeshem. Lohu HaGeshem, Lohu Astav. Amar Rabbi Tanchuma, Iker Tuchusa Mitrahi. The rain represents persecution. Kach Iker Shibudun Shal Yisrael B'Mitzrayim Shmonim Vashesh. We were landlocked in Egypt for 210 years or 400 years, depending on your counting scheme, but we were only enslaved for 86. Interesting. It wasn't a 210-year bondage. It was a 210-year winter and an 86-year rainstorm or hurricane. Sometimes Gullus intensifies towards its terminus. I think we all feel that way. We all look to the intensification of our suffering over the past 100 years as one of the indicators that history has shifted. Oftentimes it's reversed. So, for example, part bet of that section where Chazal are reading into this early stage, this first trisected element, they're reading second redemptive elements. Redemption about the return to Zion with Ezra. The Jews were in Babel for 70 years, but the first 52 were particularly onerous. 52 years into the 70 year exile, more or less the Babylonians and the Kastim had subsided and the Persians reigned and they were much more user-friendly to the Jews. So by describing the winter and the transition from winter into summer on two levels, the man, or in this case Shlomo Malch, is reminding us that when we seek Geula, we're looking for two very different experiences that should be synthesized into one return. A response or a return from Stav, and a recovery from Geshe. The second element, which is very glaring, is how much is happening at once. And this is where seasons are very helpful, because seasons are almost a frame within which you can read multiple simultaneous events in ways that animals don't allow, landscapes possibly, but certainly there are sounds, kol hator nishma there's activity, there's smell, there's obviously the expectation of taste, it's a lot happening at once. It's multi-sensory and it's multifunctional. Very often we ask ourselves, how do we know that this is redemptive? How do we know we live in a redemptive era? How do we know that it's Reshit Smichad Gulatenu? And oftentimes we're looking for that one proof, that one singular event or indicator. Now I know this is Reshit, this is Yad Hashem. More often, it isn't one single smoking gun that indicates, it's rather the overlap effect, where multiple events, none of which independently may be convincing, but when all overlap historically, they make a very powerful point. Think, for example, in another sphere, the difference between Tishabab and Shivasar Bitamas. Tishabab mourns two traumatic events that are almost identical, but there's a trauma of Tishabab that makes it so potent. None of the events in Shivasar are that traumatic, each on their own, warranting a fast. But five different events happen on the same day. Shattering of the Luchos, suspension of the Karban, the burning of the Torah, and at some point, people realized this was a day. This was a day of history. It was a day in which we were feeling the brunt of history and therefore should be designated as a day to respond to history with fast and prayer. Think of our own condition. 
Is there that one single event that's so convincing that we are now living through redemption? Or there's just so many associated events occurring, the ingathering, the blooming of our country, the return to Yerushalayim, the rehabilitation of interest in Torah, people coming to study Tanakh in the thousands, the advance of our country, culturally, economically, militarily, all taken together, the Kol HaTor, the Tenach and Tavageh, the Nas Nereach, this is unprecedented. This type of shift in which we have so many meaningful historical events overlapping in one time period. And that's the redemptive message. How do you know it will be redemptive? Kol HaTor, a very famous line, the Vilna Gon, may have written a sefer called Kol HaTor about Gula. It's highly controversial whether the Vilna Gon wrote it, Many people who don't fashion themselves Zionists are very ardently opposed to the notion that he authored a book of redemption. But in 1739, I think it was 1739 or 1729, he announced that now that the final thousand year period has begun, there's a tradition that history will last 6,000 year periods. So the final thousand year period began, I think in 1739, he started to, at least according to the legend, write the Sefer Kol Hator, announcing that redemption has begun. So these are the two primary elements which seasons enable. Number one, this duality between Geshem and Stav. Number two, the multi-sensory experience, which correlates to multiple events occurring at once. In terms of some of the specifics without delineating. Some of the specifics. The Nitzanim are shoots and sprouts. Chazal sends this as emergent leadership. Before we redeem ourselves, we have to find capable leadership. We hope that capable leadership is both a forerunner. Take a look at source number two. Nitzanim, Chazal translate in Shir to Nitzuchot, those who will defeat others. Leadership, sometimes expected leadership, Moshe Aaron. Source number two, Bet, Mordechai and Ezra, the second redemption. Source number Gimel, Eliyahu, Melech Mashiach. Third redemption as a mentioned before, not all Chazal read this chronologically. Here we are at a very early stage of Shir Hashirim in Parak Bet, and some of the references are applied to second redemptive or second period redemption and third period redemption. So clearly some of Chazal read it as one organic storyline that could be applied equally or equitably to all. The Kol HaTor, the announcement of the Tor, Chazal employ the wordplay between the word Tor, which is a bird, and the word tayar, tayar is a scout. Latur lehem minucha. So the tayar is a person who scouts the landscape ahead of the camp, and his or her function is to see into the future, ultimately, in ways that the people in the camp can't. Is it passable, or is there a water, is there a river, are there snakes, or there? His or her job is to scout. So there's a scout whose function is to announce redemption, in ways that maybe the general population can't yet sense. So in Egypt, it was Moshe Rabbeinu, source number four, Aleph, Kol HaTor, Kol HaTayar is Moshe, source number, next page, four Bet, Koresh. Interestingly enough, the Persian king is the announcer, but there's an announcement, time has come. And ultimately, four Gimel, Melech HaMashiach. To be certain, it's all not just peaches and cream in this spring, but spring is a period of a lot of hustle, bustle, and activity, but there's also some clipping and pruning and rejecting unripened fruit. The unripened fruit has to be discarded. 
And there's a sense that certainly was true in Egypt, according to lore, and, and according to some versions that may be true in our future redemption, that not every human being or not every Jew will navigate redemption. Some may have to, at least for the redemptive period, may not survive the redemption. And they may be shed. So source number five, Aleph talks about the Porsche Yisrael, those who sinned and were either eliminated during Choshech or Makat Bacharat or chose not to join so that the Yisharim could be redeemed. Bet, five Bet describes the future redemption based on the Pasuk in Yeshaya, that not everyone will remain or, let's say, witness firsthand the events in Yushalayim. So there's an ominous part to this redemption. And not only internally, but also internationally. Eitazamir Higia, the time of clipping or of pruning has occurred or has appeared. Parak Bet Pasuk Bet is a triple entendre. Just to show how lush these metaphors can be. On a literal level, in terms of the storyline, there's a pruning and a clipping of trees. But if there's clipping to be done, it's not just clipping the trees and trimming the trees, but also clipping and trimming some of the anti-redemptive forces, some of our opponents who have to be defeated. According to versions, I didn't put down the sources, that according to some versions, refers to the Egyptians, Imot HaMashiach, Esau, the iniquitous nations. The third level of Eitazamir is not the clipping of the fruit, or the pruning of the fruit and the clipping of our enemies, but the song, Eitazamir Milashon Zmirot, the song that's, that emerges from spring and the song that we're expected to sing upon being redeemed. Shira Chadasha one of the responses of a redeemed person is to offer a new praise. Our praise must be different today. We, someone just asked me, there's a very famous controversy about Tishabav, should we change Nachem and how to commemorate Tishabav in the modern era? I don't even know where the question begins. Maybe semantically, what words to use? Is anyone capable of mourning Tishabav? It's us. Because we have retrospective vantage point. We know how much we struggled for this land. We know how close we are. It's obvious that our Tishabavs have to be completely different than the Tishabavs in the past. I think it's just as charged and just as passionate, but from a completely different vantage point. Anyway, the core of the question is a correct question. You may not want to change our tefillahs. That's a halachic issue, but... The question is a very legitimate and compelling one. What is the response of the woman? How does she respond to this invitation pitched within a certain weather pattern and a weather front? So on the one hand, or to ask yourself the question in more contemporary terms, this is in English here. So I imagine everyone in this room, or most people in this room, pilgrimage to Israel. I imagine a lot of you made your way to Israel to live or to visit because you believe this is redemptive and it's important to be here this summer and every summer and every day of our lives. And yet so much of our family didn't make that trip. And we constantly ask ourselves, why not? What is so much of a deterrent? Why can't you see what we see? Why do people not leap at redemptive invitation? That's really the question of Shir Shir. Why don't we answer the door? So why don't we answer in Parak Bet? The door will come in Parak A and Vav, but why don't we answer the invitation? What about human nature and Jewish recalcitrance makes us inflexible and insensitive? So on the one hand, we fear. Perak bet pasuk tedvav echzulanu shualim shualim ketanim mechablim kramin. There are foxes, there are rodents. We have to protect our kerem, and there are saboteurs, and we have to protect our kerem against. We have external enemies. We don't want to move to Israel because our enemies frighten us away. Shualim ketanim mechablim kramin. But that's not the end of it. 
She reaffirms her love, despite the fact that she isn't responding to his invitation. But then she gives a second reason, and I gather it's probably the real reason. Foxes are just, excuse the mixed metaphor, the foxes of a scapegoat. <laughs> Terrible, right? <laughs> just to see if you're still awake. <laughs> she waits until the day will be cooled. I want the day to be cooled. I want to wait until the shadows have been removed or have fleed. So, run away. Wait for me on the mountains of Bater. What concerns her? What is she really imprisoned by? Why doesn't she answer this call? Well, there are three factors at play here. Number one, she's afraid of the shadows, the shade of the tzlalim, of the uncertainty. Maybe spring, but it's still cloudy. Remember what spring was like this year? A little bit inconsistent. They woke up and there were clouds. It wasn't the bright sun and the oppressive sun that sits behind these shades. Every redemptive response is a leap of faith. It isn't clear in its early stages. It's just the potential. And that uncertainty is inhibiting. Or deterring. I want clarity. I want to see it as clear as day. Second issue which perturbs her, she wants the clouds to be dispersed. Yafuach means the blowing, as if you blow clouds. The dispersal and the movement of clouds is a bit uh, disarming, it's a bit um, deceiving, because we don't know how fast they're actually moving. When you climb up to the mountains, you see how quickly the cloud moves from location to location when there's wind, when there's movement. In fact, when Yeshaya speaks about quick and rapid atonement and penitence, he asks Hashem, It's not clear whether he wants the clouds to cover the sins or he wants Hashem to remove his sins in a quick and rapid fashion like the movement of the clouds. It probably means both. She wants it to be quick and rapid. She wants it to be cloud-like. She wants it to be ethereal, as we would use. Doesn't want it to be plotting. The shoots are appearing, the birds are singing, but there's a process, and the process will unfold, and there'll be bad days and good days, and successful days and less successful days, and triumphs and travails, and national celebrations, and national mourning. It's too much for her. And finally, what she really wants is she wants the clouds to be blown. It's a strange word. It's actually yafuach hayom. It should be actually yiskar hayom. She wants the clouds to be blown away. Who would be the blower? Who would be blowing the clouds away? the male. She wants Hashem's direct involvement. We want Hashem. We don't just want an invitation to join a redemptive process in the spring. We want you to sweep down and redeem us. We want to feel your breath, literally. And this male or man knows how to breathe. I mean, not just to breathe, but to breathe forcefully. In the beginning of Parakeh, where they're distant, Bati Lagani, he's in his garden, where she doesn't attend, Pasuk Aleph. Excuse me. The end of Parak Dalet, Pasuk Tezayin, He blows, or he expects the gun to be blown by the winds for the fragrances to carry. So she wants his breath. And that's not yet evident. Chazal sense the play on words between Yafuach 
and the word yofia, source number bet after the, the response of the woman in the middle of the second page, I want to see you. I don't just want to be invited to some rendezvous point, which I know is redemptive. I want to feel and see your presence. And because of these three, she begs him to delay. And of course, now that he's sensitive to her needs, he's willing to delay. And in Perak Dalet, he waits for her. He's willing to wait. Pasuk Vav, Perak Dalet, Ad, Hayom. The exact same. He speaks her language and he accedes to her wish. Ad, Hayom. Note, maybe for next year's year, he doesn't travel to Harivater as she requests, he travels to Haramor. She wants him in Harivater, he travels to Haramor and to Givata Livona. And that's the first transition point in which weather is employed to capture some of the subtleties of redemption and the difficulties of redemption and the reasons why we're yet to be redeemed. The second shift and the second utilization of weather and environment occurs in Perak Vav Pasuk Yud. And again, since this is a latter stage part of the trisection, part of the Sefer, this will predominantly be describing our experience, although it could have reference points back to previous redemptions. Mizos. Someone is startled. Mizot. The something or someone that appears like the morning. There's a shift. But the shift is not driven primarily by weather and season, but by planets and sunrise. We'll be able to tag the season ultimately based on the fruit. We can decode which season this is, but it isn't driven by season, it's driven by night turning into day. But before I describe this section, note that the middle part of the trisection, which largely refers to Shivatsio, doesn't have any environmental, seasonal setting to frame the shift. That second redemptive attempt, roughly, beginning in Parakei, Bati Lagani Achoti Kala, Riti Marim Sami, Achati Erim Divshi, please come. She doesn't come. She's sleeping. He approaches, Kaldoti Yodofek, Pasuk Bet, Parakei, Pitchli Achoti Raiti Yamati. There's nothing weather oriented about this. There's no rising sun. There's no shifting season. He just knocks on the door. Evidently, that second redemptive opportunity was less dramatic. Mitzrayim was dramatic. 210 years, foreign country, enslaved. We expect, we expect Mashiach to be drama, apocalyptic, a complete overhaul. Shivat Siyam was much more humdrum. We spent 52 to 70 years, depending on when we left, with our cousins in Babel. They were our cousins, Lot's family, Lot's descendants. We probably communicated back with the people in Israel, the letter writing that takes place in Ezra. It's a light form of exile, but isn't this seismic shift between Galut and Geula. So the bookends of history, Yitzhak Mitzrayim and Yimot HaMashiach are dramatic, and the drama is captured by a shift, whether it be the shift from winter into spring, or the shift from spring into, as you'll see later, late summer and fall. But before we get to the season, Shlomo Malch wants us to think about sunrises. Mizot Hanishkafa Kemoshachar. 
Why is the sunrise a more powerful image for the final gula than a season? And why is it employed in the end rather than in the beginning? We believe that redemption is not a parochial or national event, but it's a universal event. We believe that our universalism and our nationalism are not separate parts of our identity, but they're ultimately intertwined. We believe that advancing Mashiach is not just so Jews should celebrate in Zion with endless benefits and luxuries, but that we can advance the human condition and perfect the human condition across the board, global welfare, for every person walking this earth. To a degree, seasons capture that because the change in seasons are global. They're not just localized, they're felt across, but even seasons are much more localized because you know, there are some people from the southern hemisphere here. So when we transition into spring, you're transitioning into pre-winter. So even hemispherically, the ecology is different, but of course it's also localized based on weather patterns. Sunrise is sunrise. No matter where you stand, well, it could be a longer sunrise, shorter day, longer day, but it's a universal change, and it's recognized, and people benefit from it. And of course, the popularity in our era of Orla Goyim. So the sun and the moon rising together, because it's probably either at dawn or dusk, it's unclear, but you have a sun and a moon together, Yafa, Kalavana, Barak, you see the sun and the moon occupying the sky jointly. It's meant to connote something about the final geula that will be global and widespread rather than local and insular. And based on this Chazal sense, it's sourced the second page, Sofa Kaitz, Perak Vav. If you look at page three, we'll go backwards. The top of page three, source bet, Mizotani Shkafa, Zu Gulata Mashiach. Chazal had a sense that this sudden Mizot, you have to find the words that signal. This is on the top of page three. Or side three? Oh, I see. Okay, it's, it's uh, part bet. I see your, your pagination is a little different. It's part bet in the section known as. Last piece, thank you. Last paragraph on page two. Keep in mind that the recognition of a shift in that first section was Hine, Hastavo there. Hine, it occurs. At this point, the announcement is Mizel Moshachar. All of a sudden, there's some surprising appearance. And Chazal were sensitive to this. Again, bottom of page two. Zugula Tamashiach, part bet. Part Gimel, the end of the Part Gimel will be a little quick. Once the moon rises, or in this case the sun rises, everyone's happy, they can travel. So there's general impact to this redemption that quite frankly is less significant and less relevant during the redemption from Mitzrayim. Obviously people took note of the Jewish liberation and of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's authority, but quite frankly the world wasn't yet sophisticated enough to appreciate monotheism and Hashem's presence in this world in the year 2004 and They were savages, they were cannibals, they didn't have society, civilizations. Of course they felt Hashem's might and power. We feel as if in the year 2018 the world is prepared to process the events that may unfold. They're able to understand after 2,000 years roughly of monotheism, 2,000 years roughly of morality. They're, they're able to understand some of the ideas and values that we reflect and that will be consolidated and finalized with our gula. So the world is less attentive in Perak Bet than it should be in Perak Vav. And that's why the transition of Perak Vav is illumination and radiance for everyone to appreciate and to walk, literally walk by. Kivan Shabbat Levana, everyone starts to travel, as Chazal tells us. So it's important for Shlomo to frame 
this shift, not based on seasons primarily, but first and foremost by the change from darkness to light. Remember, there's a lot of darkness in the previous sections. Amishkavi Balilot, the woman distant from her husband is dreaming of her of her husband while she sleeps on her bed. Paragimel, of course, he approaches her door in Parakei. Not only is he in the middle of darkness, but his beard is dark. Think about a dark beard. And my hair, my hair curls are blanketed by darkness. Sparkles of darkness, sparkles of, of, of the night. So now there's light. Remember, most of the events of Shir Hashim are not on the clock. We don't really know whether they happen in AM or PM. But for the previous two chapters, it was clearly the PM experience. It was nocturnal experiences, and now the dawn is setting. And now, Mizot Hanishkafa, Kemo Shachar. There's another interesting aspect to this section, very briefly, because I want to pay a little attention to the descent into the garden. Who is this entity that appears like the morning? Mizot Hanishkafa, Kemo Shachar. Is it the woman? Maybe, because she was spoken about in the previous section, maybe this is a continuation, but there's a textual fissure here, Mizot, some new appearance that they don't recognize, Mizot. If all the Pilakshim and Venot Yishlam had praised her before, presumably when she arrives, even if she looks radiant, they'll know, oh, you look pretty today, but Mizot In addition, it's not clear that she knows where she's going. Tupso came later. Pasuk Yudved, I don't know where I am. Nashi Samati, I'm just led by my soul. Markavot Amin Adiv, I'm led here by wheels of my people. It's not clear that they're looking at her. So if we're not looking at her, we're certainly not looking at him, because it wouldn't be Nishkafa. It would be Mizah Nishkaf, not Mizotah Nishkafa. So who are we as the reader or the spectators in Shir Hashirim actually looking at? And one of the answers is we may be looking at redemption personified by the rising sun. And of course, this pasuk served as the source for a very, very famous teal near the Kinneret between two Tanayim. Go back to page two, parts, the end of the summer. Part one, Aleph. Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Shimon, a very famous story, are walking near Arabel, right above the Kinner. They see the sunrise, they think of this Pasuk, and Rabbi Chia says, this is how Geula will happen. This is how redemption will unfold. Bitchila, line number two from the bottom, Ba Kima Kima, it starts out very slowly, and then subsequently it explodes and erupts like the sun, like the sunrise. Essentially, you have a personification of redemption. Redemption is becoming a woman. Keep in mind, personification is a very powerful poetic tool to create relationship and conversation. So, Amir Tzashem, Matzei Shabbos, will all read about the personalization of Yerushalayim. Zachra Yerushalayim, Yimean Yamuda, will recite Kinos in which Yerushalayim becomes an organic thinking entity who speaks and mourns. Could it be that at this stage in history, we've lived long enough and thought about redemption long enough and written about it long enough and studied about it long enough that we know it better? We know it a lot better than we used to or could have known it as fledgling slaves who had no redemptive imagination because they were backbroken and they didn't think about our study as long as we have. 
We've all read the Rambam, and we've all read, thank you, we've all read the Gerat Shamad and Animamins, and at this point we can describe redemption in its various stages, and we're more prepared for it. So, Mizot Hanishkafa Kimoshachar may not be referring to a woman, we may be referring to a process. And may be seen by both parties, by the man and the female. So the sun rises, and the man decides to take a little trip. If I decide to travel to a garden. Now, gardens in Shir Hashem are highly important, but this is the third type of garden we've seen. She has a garden, which he wants entry to, but still hasn't received. So, Perak, Dalid, Pasuk Yudbet, Gan Naul Kala. My bride is still a closed garden. I can't gain entry into it. Mayan Ganim, Pasuk Tedvav, Perak Dalid, Be'er Mayim Chayim Nozlim Min Nilabanon. The garden has a river in it, but I haven't been granted entry yet, so she is in her garden. Of course, he has a garden. Perakei Pasuk Aleph, Bati Legani Achuti Kala, Riti Marim, Sami Achati Arim, Divshi. I'm waiting for you. So she has a garden. And he has a garden, but there's no connection between them. But now he travels to a third garden, to the garden of the nuts. It's all right, to the garden of the nuts. Alginas Egoziaradati. And in that garden, he witnesses not just nuts, but he witnesses grapes, but grapes that are flowering. Remember, we saw unripened grapes earlier. Now the grapes are flowering. So this is, of course, helping us to tag the season. This is now late fall, when the grapes are on the vine, not just the buds or the shoots. So now the unripened figs have been replaced by pomegranates. We all spent many years of our lives living outside of Israel being asked the question, why do we eat pomegranates in Rosh Hashanah? and trying to count whether there really are 613 seeds. <laughs> now that we live in Israel, we know the real reason, because that's when they ripen. And it's the last ripening fruit, and it signals the end of the season. You just have to live in Israel to know these answers. You just have to come. So this is late fall, and he's witnessing flowering fruits and hard-shelled nuts. But it's not his garden, which would be, let's say, Shemayim, in the case of HaKadosh Baruch, it's not her garden, which would be Beis HaMikdash, Yerushalayim. So what is it? Evidently, and I'll just fly through some of the sources because we're a little bit late, because I'll see this as a reference to descending into the world, into the garden of the world. And what does he see in the garden of the world? He sees things have flowered. Nuts are protected. At this point, Hashem isn't just inviting us for a unilateral gula which we don't deserve. There's a certain romance of being swept off your feet, but we're all, those of us who are married know that's not real spousal relationship where it's one-sided and you sweep the other person off of her or his feet. And a real relationship is parity and each part of the relationship and each member knows that they've earned the validation, the love, and you feel empowered. We didn't feel empowered in Parakabet because we didn't deserve it. What did we accomplished? But now it's 2,000 years later. And there are flowers and ripened fruit. And it's the fall. 
And Chazal attached the flowering grapes to the shuls we've built and to the communities we've built and the Torah we've studied and in one very, very harrowing medrash. Haparcha Agefen means Kriya Shema. How many Jews have recited Kriya Shema while they were being Makad Hashem Shemayim? Isn't that a flower that makes us deserving of Geula? And the hard-shelled Egozim suggests a fruit that's protected, it could get dirtied and sullied and tossed around. Very often the nuts are collected from under the tree. Think of the acorns. We're not tender and delicate. We've been through a lot. We've been tossed through the waves of history. We've been sullied and besmirched, but we protected our fruit. And at this stage, late fall, we feel that we deserve redemption in Gula. We can talk to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in that tone and David him in ways that we couldn't because of our milestones and accomplishments. And quite frankly, it doesn't just give us the audacity, it gives us the sense of we've earned it. Because there's a ginat egos, it's not our ginat, it's not his ginat, it's the ginat history. And we've tilled it and we've cultivated it. And that's why, if you see, there's a confidence in her response that was completely absent before. Literally, in Parak Bet, she was afraid of her own shadow. But now in Parak Zion, a little bit later, because there's a seductive attempt to divert her by other nations, the beginning of Parak Zion, but if you turn to the end of Parak Zion, after she confirms her love to the others, then she invites him, you're right, it says, then, Let's check if you're right. If the geffen is flowering, if the smadar has ripened, she repeats the grounds of their redemption because she's confident in it. And in fact, not only is she confident, but she really adds two elements, and I'll just describe these very briefly. She wants to visit the village. Nalina Bakfari, remember she's a villager, so at a literal level she knows the village better than he does. He just has a general sense that we can find grapes out there, but she's got a roadmap. We'll visit this village, we'll visit this vineyard. So she knows the terrain better than he does. But Chazal played the word Kfarim into the word Kofrim. Kfarim, Kofrim. Nalina, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, my husband, let me show you how many people have denied your presence throughout history. How many Kofrim there have been? How many Cultures have risen on the denial of God, communism, or the distortion of God. And our faith has remained intact. So it's not just that we've accomplished, but we've accomplished in ways that haven't been replicated by others. These flowers and grapes and pomegranates are growing in Kfarim. At least here there's a really distinct difference in contrast between the literal reading and the metaphoric reading. Kfarim becomes Kofrim. And she also says, not only is there fruit readily available, there's flowers, and we didn't have a chance to discuss flowers, but the fruit now is aligned very carefully by our home. There's a home, there's a doorstep, and they're not just raw fruit, but they're migadim. Sweet, tasty, whether it's sweet, tasty fruit, or possibly apple pie, or some migadim. She says, you left me but I still kept house. Come, see what I've prepared for you. You've been away for a 2,000 year business trip. But I've stayed behind and our house is intact and the feast is ready. So just to read the last source, the final source, the Al-Patachinu Kamigadim, part four bet. The Beis Rebbe Shila, Amrim Le'isha Kashera. This woman is like a saintly woman. The husband traveled and left her with nothing. 
Kivan Shabbat Baila. She was undersourced. Amrilo, she tells him, Look at what she left me with. Look at how difficult history has been. And how he prepared so nicely for you. That's how Shlomo HaMelech uses seasons and fruits, sunrises and sunsets. There's so much to unfold and unwind about Geula. He literally requires each and every one of these metaphors. And seasons provide him, as I said earlier, at a global level with a sense of shift, as well as the dual readings of a chronological timeline, as well as overlapping cycles. The first shift happens and provides redemptive potential, but it's just that. It's just potential, and she's too young, and she hasn't deserved anything, and there are too many uncertainties. At a later stage, she's earned it. Because there's a flowering, and there's a ginat egos, history. How can we deserve Geula in the year 2448 because of historical warrant? History hasn't begun yet. But now in Tavshinayin Chet, history has unfolded, and it carries a whole different message about Geula because there's a ginat egos. On that note, since we have one more minute, and I'm always knowing to end with a story about Rav Amital, founding Rosh Hashiva, our yeshiva. His yard site was two weeks ago. He always told us the story of Mendela. Mendela's job in the shtetl was to wake the entire shtetl up for slichos, the entire Chodesh Elul. Don't ask me, it was a Spartak shtetl, okay. <laughs> it was a Spartak shtetl, the shtetl in Morocco. The story is better if they woke up all Chodesh Elul. Not just the quick three-day slichos that Ashkenazim get away from. You know, this fair-weather Ashkenazim. Ashkenazim and Elul and Sardin and Nisan. He woke the entire city up ruthlessly. And now it's Arab Rosh Hashanah. He's exhausted. So he's fallen asleep during the slichos. Adam Nefakdach was saying the Tefillah of Rosajigah and he's fashlafen. So everyone in the shtetl starts taking the little pieces of paper and crumpling it up and throwing it at Mendel to wake him up. And he looks at them all bleary-eyed and he says, I'm just so tired. Can't you just let me sleep? Why are you waking me up? And they'll look at him and say, Mendela, you kept us up all Chodesh You didn't let us sleep. You were ruthless. You are cruel. You think we're going to let you sleep peacefully on Erev Rosh Hashanah? Rav Amital always told us, we're the Mendel of the world's shtetl. We kept the world awake for 2,000 years. We didn't let them sink into immorality. We didn't let them sink into theological confusion. At the point of death, we proved monotheism and we defied all, emperor, all empires that tried to crush these ideas. And now it's Erev Rosh Hashanah. We just want to go to sleep in our country. And the world said, Mendel, are you kidding? You kept us awake for 2,000 years. You want to go to sleep in Israel? We'll throw things at you as well. We have to know that's our job to be Mendel, but we've fared fairly successfully in the Gina Enjoy the rest of the day.